Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, May 16, 2023 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is New York City-based jazz composer, arranger, pianist, conductor, and educator Erica Seguin. In 2011, she co-founded with composer Sean Baker their 21-musician ensemble, the Erica Seguin Sean Baker Orchestra. Since then, they have performed all around New York City, including Birdland Jazz Club, the Jazz Gallery, Lunar Fair, a witchy weird night market festival, Culture Lab LIC, Shape Shifter Lab, T Lounge, Slope Lounge, Grace Church, and had a monthly residency for one year in Montclair, New Jersey. In 2017, New York Music Daily has said, in terms of majestic sweep, cinematic scope, and clever outside-of-the-box humor, it's hard to think of a more interesting group in big band jazz. They were also written about in a 2019 New York Times article by Giovanni Rusinello about the current big band scene. In August 2019, the orchestra went into Octavian's audio to record their debut album with Darcy James Argue producing and Brian Montgomery engineering. It was released March 31st, 2023. In addition to writing for and conducting the jazz orchestra, Erica is also the resident conductor and one of the resident composers of the Meeting House Jazz Orchestra, a big band that rehearses new music by emerging composers, as well as traditional big band repertoire. They rehearse weekly in the city and put on a few concerts annually. She is also a conductor with the D-O-M-E experience, a multimedia experience with dance, 
film, and studio orchestra, and has also conducted performances with Remy LeBeuf's Assembly of Shadows, Meg Okura's Pan-Asian Chamber Jazz Ensemble, the Joel Harrison Big Band, Sam Blakesley's Large Ensemble, and P.J. Rasmussen's Boardwalk Big Band, conducting at venues including Dizzy's Club at Jazz at Lincoln Center, Birdland, Roulette Intermedium in Brooklyn, The Jazz Gallery, City Winery, New York City, and many more. Erica's compositions and arrangements have also been performed by many other ensembles, including the Metropole Orchestra of the Netherlands, the Symphonic Jazz Orchestra in Los Angeles, the Danish Radio Big Band, Denmark, the Brilliant Corners Large Ensemble, Japan, the New York Youth Symphony Jazz, the J Orchestra, New York City, the Millennium Jazz Orchestra, again of the Netherlands, the Zurich Jazz Orchestra, Switzerland, P.J. Rasmussen's Boardwalk Big Band, New York City, Greg Ruvolo's Big Band, New York City, and many college ensembles. She received the 2013 BMI Foundation Charlie Parker Prize 2014 Manny Album Commission for the Ravine and the Tire Swing Keeps Spinning. Three ASCAP Foundation Herb Alpert Young Jazz Composer Awards, the 2014 ASCAP Founding Foundation Johnny Mandel Prize for Real three ASCAP Plus Awards, and was one of eight selected internationally to be part of the 2012 Metropole Orchestra Arrangers Workshop under Vince Mendoza with Kurt Elling as soloist. Erica has been blessed to study under many inspiring teachers. She graduated with a Bachelor of Music in Jazz Studies and Contemporary, contemporary Media Writing Concentration from the Eastman School of Music in 2009, studying composition and arranging under Bill Dobbins and piano under Harold Danko and Tony Caramia. She continued her studies at William Patterson University, receiving a Master of Music in Jazz Arranging in 2011, and studied composing and arranging with Jim McNeely and Rich DeRosa. She was also a member of the long-standing BMI Jazz Composers Workshop. Erica loves to champion new music, particularly in the big band scene and passes her knowledge on to her own composition and piano students, teaching private lessons, and was a woman in jazz organization, WIJO, mentor in 2019-2020. Erica is also a host with jazzcomposerspresent.com, an organization that presents weekly composer spotlights and listening sessions from composers around the world for those wanting to learn more about the craft and process of jazz composition. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Erica Segway. Hello, Erica. 
Hello. Hello, Craig. How are you? I am doing wonderful. Thank you so much. It's really great to talk with you and wonderful to have you on my show today. I've really been looking forward to the opportunity to talk with you. I would like to get right to it and strike where the iron is hot. You just released a new album three days ago, and last night was the release party. And I would like That's you to right. I'd like you to talk about your new album, the the new day bends light. Now, some of the info that I read about it is that it's been four years in the making. Of course, we know we had COVID in there, and that was probably part of it. Of course, that's part of it. And but what I'm I'm really curious about is how the music on this new album might might differ from your previously released material. And then tell me, how's the album been received so far? All right. Awesome. So, wow, that's a whirlwind in itself. So, um, yeah, the album New Day Ben's Light. So I'm co-leader of the uh, 21 musician Erica Seguin Sean Baker Orchestra. Um, so I write a lot of the music for the band. And then my co-leader, Sean, writes also the other half of the music for the band. Um, and I conduct the band and Sean has played uh, saxophones and woodwinds in the band. Um, so we finally we've had our big band for almost 12 years. It was June 2011 when we had our first gig together um, as an ensemble, as a co-led ensemble. So we wanted to actually, believe it or not, you mentioned four years in the making, which is kind of true, but we really wanted to record way back. We talked about starting to toying the idea back in 2013. So in a way it's almost 10 years in the making. Mm -hmm. um, and the, first of all, the journey to get to record, there was a lot of self-doubt so like a lot of times when you're putting yourself out there as an artist there's you can feel a lot of self-doubt you can feel like is what i'm creating worthy enough and there was a lot of triggers there plus the idea of the financial daunting of recording a big band album so there was first of all six years before we even got into finally the recording studio and i remember talking with um darcy james argue um who's amazing, incredible composer, human band leader in his own right. And um, we were just talking over, I think it was after one of the BMI concerts. And um, I was just mentioning how I've been wanting to record this album for like forever. And he, I was just extremely ecstatic and grateful and excited when he offered to produce. So we um, went into the studio in August, 2019 uh, with our band to record the new day Ben's light. And um, the thing was right after our recording session and we used um, our engineer, who's amazing, a genius, incredible Brian Montgomery, literally the four days after our recording session was Maria Schneider's recording session for data Lords. Mm. So we were like, like, you know, essentially our recording sessions were one after another, but the thing was Maria already had um, Brian booked through February 2020. So our first availability was March 2020. <laughs> we know what happened then. Gee, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I, I think might have slept under a rock. I remember the day, March 13th, 2020. Yes. It was the last, it was a Friday the 13th, and it was the last rehearsal I would have for, for well over a year. I remember like that day, I think I already chose, I think I had some students that I would have normally saw in person, and I was already like, you know what, we're going to do virtual lessons like that day. Mm -hmm. So that was like, I remember doing that that day. 
Um, but anyways, so we wanted to do our editing and mixing sessions in person. So we waited. So we were like, okay, you know, let's wait until May 2020. Then it became, well, when May was getting close and obviously that wasn't going to happen. How about August 2020? <laughs> and then it was like, okay, how about December 2020? And so then we were like talking with um Darcy, our producer, and he was like, you know, if um you wait to do in-person editing mixing sessions, you're not going to be doing this for two years. Mm-hmm. So... About the end of 2020, we finally bit the bullet and we're like, we're going to do these editing and mixing sessions remotely. So we did it over all this, you know, this is like 21, you know, musicians again. We did this over a streaming service and um, a phone call with our engineer. And it was a long process. I mean, we would do about maybe like once a week or so, but it would be very intense once or twice a week, be very intense. And that was stretched over a long period of time. So that was partly why post recording, there was a lot of delay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So there is that. And then um, there's some other, you know, personal issues happened that prevented further. Even once we finally had the master, there were some personal issues that happened. Um, uh, if you have a physical copy of our album, um, you can see on the inside of the jacket that the album is dedicated in memory of um, Barry Baker, which is Sean's father. Okay. And so very sadly, he passed away um, in twenty middle of 2022 from cancer. So there was some that also held us up from releasing too, because there was a lot going on on that end. So we're finally, you know, we finally, like I said, uh, March 31st released our album. We're very proud of the project. Um, And in in addition to the the fact of just excellent musicianship all around, I feel like our album really tells a story a lot about psychological themes of mental illness and going through journeys and healing, what messy form of healing could look like. Um, so I think it tells a beautiful story, not only within the track, each track itself, but, um, overall as a story, I'm trying to, what were the other questions you mentioned about the four years <laughs> in the making? You mentioned, well, I wanted, I wanted to know if the music on this new album differed a great deal from your previously released material or, oh. but you know. That was one of the questions. And I was curious as to how the album has been received so far by the listening public. Oh, yeah. So as far as previous, I mean, this is actually the orchestra's debut recording. So as far as an orchestra, this is our first recording. That being said, yes, we've, you know, I mean, we have, while we've released only seven tracks or recorded seven tracks, I mean, we have like a book of about 30 charts in Ah, our book okay so there's a lot of other charts you know that we performed over the years there's probably some youtube videos out there of various Mm -hmm. other pieces that we performed Mm -hmm. um on top of that i've also written for some other ensembles probably most notably i've written um arrangements for the metropole orchestra so Mm -hmm. there's been also a couple cd projects where a couple of my arrangements have been on various recordings with the metropole um so but as far as like really original, like personal 
music, I think this is like the first professionally recorded stuff that's not like, okay, this is arrangements I did for whoever so gotcha. or whoever so or whoever so. Like this is really like my own personal writing and Sean's mm -hmm. personal writing, you know, with that's an cool. ensemble that's been with us for essentially like 12 years. So it's uh, it's really in many ways the uh, the apex or the the uh, uh, what's uh, the culminating experience one might say of a band that's been playing together uh, off and on because of COVID for this right. time period and uh, and really kind of taking and uh, freezing in time if you will where you are with uh, right. this group and your particular compositional motivations and, and, and that outcome. Um, I, uh, I, well, that's, that's just awesome to know that. I mean, and you wrote this, this is your music for you as opposed to writing for someone else. So that's, that's really cool. Right. Well, tell, uh, tell my audience about uh, your release party last night and how is the album being received? So we had um, our release party actually literally last night, um, April 2nd, Sunday at Birdland Jazz Club, um, mm. which we're exact to be playing there. We played there back in October and we had an amazing time. We loved playing at Birdland. I mean, I love going to see music at Birdland and hearing mm. other bands at Birdland. So it was exciting when we first played back in October and it's been really just awesome to return to Birdland for our release party. Um, yeah so i mean the band was great uh i'm still like just kind of like process i'm kind of still a little tired actually i'm kind of like processing it all <laughs> um so far i think the album is i mean it's really hard to tell how the album's being received yet because literally like i said it was just released a few days ago so okay. we haven't really seen most of the reviews yet i hope we get mm -hmm. you know a good you know, get a good reception. I hope we get a bunch of reviews and everything. But, you know, like I said, it was just released a few days ago and we've heard that a lot of reviews don't happen until after the album's released. Gotcha. So, so um, as far as like the reception of it, I don't think, um, I can't really tell yet because I don't think it's been its full force okay, yet well, let me, of, of let reception. Me, let me ask you this from maybe from a different perspective because I know myself bands that i have loved to play in are the bands that have people in the band or lead the band who write because i would rather i mean not that i have anything against with playing other you know buddy rich's charts or stan kenton's charts or thad jones charts or whatever but i always really thrive on playing uh new original material particularly by someone i know yeah now how had uh, the people in your band what, what what was their reception to your music i mean did they really go like wow erica this is so cool you know i believe so and i believe so throughout not just the release but like the whole process of it um like mm -hmm. over the years like the fact i think it's a testimony the fact that first of all i mean first of all yes band members have like said yes this is so cool this is awesome to be in and we're just grateful to have musicians that really respect the music but i think and even more powerful than what they're saying is i think the action itself because like i said we've had our band for 12 years mm -hmm. a lot of these musicians have been with us well, there's been a couple that have been with us since day one, but I'd say m 
by the time we've reached and our band, especially the early years, we evolved our personnel and kind of figured out who is the right, you know, people in, mm-hmm. in the ensemble. Around 2014, 2015, I felt like, okay, we um were really close to having like, you know, like the musicians that we want in our band. And the fact that pretty much most of them from that point stayed with us until this day. Mm-hmm. I think is testimony in itself. So mm-hmm. yes, I've heard the yes, this music's awesome. I love playing your music and and stuff like that. And I, you know, and I, it always brings a joy to bring joy to these musicians because you know I want them to have a great time too. I want them to have a one as much of a wonderful experience as the audience does. Uh, but I think what even more means something both to me and Sean is the fact that these musicians have been by our side. Mm-hmm. for like you know some of them some of them for the whole 12 years mm-hmm. most of them for almost a decade mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think that in itself says a lot but yes we've heard awesome. the words too but i think you know the action of that even more so means something to me yeah well you know i mean as a sideman in the bands i played in play in as well as you know i mean i just love it when somebody writes and i go what a cool idea for a line i love that or i love that chord change or i love man that just you know it just it tickles my aesthetic innards i guess that's the best way to put it right uh and i know like when i write for my groups when i write something and i'm i'm really not much of an arranger i i i'm very uh, I have no training whatsoever in arranging, but I, I know sometimes what I like and what I can beg, borrow and steal. Uh, and well, steal, I mean that lightly, of course. Uh, and what I'm thinking about mostly is what are the, what are the people in my band going to think about this? Are they going to like it? Are they going to dig it? Are they going to get into it? And then the other thing you mentioned, I, I'm so happy to hear that, it, that it's not just me, that you, you kind of have this sixth sense of knowing when you've got the right combination of people. Yeah. I have been struggling since COVID with my my eight piece. And finally, I think I've got the right combination of people, people who love to play together, like each other, and have fun together on gigs instead of, well, for lack of a better term, stinking thinkers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and, I'm, and 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 I'm glad to hear that it's not just me that that finally realizes, oh, this is the right group of people. This these people are fun to work with. I like them. They like me, and we're right. moving forward and making good music. That's super important. I think, I think even more than being the most technically brilliant player, or the most dazzling the soloist i think is having respect for the music that you're writing and that is extremely palpable i feel Mm -hmm. sean and i feel that with the musicians that have been with our band i mean i just like think like i'm like visualizing the band like in front of me right now and i'm just like thinking about people like scott reeves who's just been you know he's played with our band since 2012. so this has been over a decade he's played with our band and not only just his brilliant playing and his own writing, he's a big band composer that I love listening to him, you know, himself, mm-hmm. but it's just all the support he's giving us all the years, all the advice he's given us, you know, just just verbally, like, you know, the support he's given us, the, the fact that, you know, when we've rehearsed, you know, at City College and he's always, you know, allowed us to use the space, you know, 
And I look right yeah. next to him, I think about Nick Grinder and trombone, you know, and all the support. He's, you know, like, again, you know, in that respect and love. And I could go on with the whole band, you know, I, like you mentioned Andrew earlier, or no, mm -hmm. we talked about Andrew earlier, yeah, I think before right. this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Andrew Hadro. And again, the same thing. I could go pretty much one by one each band member. And it's just there. there's definitely a lot of love, you know, and that really means something immensely to me. So. Mm -hmm. Yes, we don't know how this album is going to be received yet by the wider public yet. I mean, like I said, it just got released. You know, mm -hmm, I hope we mm -hmm, have a good reception, mm -hmm. but I know that at very least that the band has our back and we have their back. And sometimes that's 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 equally important, if not more important. I yeah. I mean, you yes, you want to have you want to have good critical reception, but you know, the people that you work with on a regular basis having their support, the support of your colleagues, I think is, is, you know, one thing that's uh, uh, always uh, very important in my, in my thinking. And uh, so I think that's awesome. I'm so happy to hear uh, uh, about uh, your work and, and, and the fact that you're surrounded by people who perhaps put the music as their top priority. They love music. And they love mm -hmm. music so much that they they're not going to get into like little competitive, uh, yeah. you know what I'm talking about, hissy fits exactly. with people like, well, you know, and 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 talk dirt about you or anything, you know. I think that's awesome to have that kind of support uh, from other people in you know just moving the music forward. So that's that's awesome. I'm very happy for you, Erica. That's that's great. Um, We're likewise yeah, very happy. Yeah, well, you should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm curious because I always, and I always ask everyone kind of their origin story. As a composer and arranger, who or what inspired you? What turned on the light for you to become a composer and arranger in the big band idiom? Or maybe we shouldn't just limit it to big band. But composer. I mean, there's a actually a lot of, I think, steps in that, actually, when you mention that. So first, I'd say, if I really go back, back, let's say to 10-year-old me, I started piano lessons when I was nine. And then 10, when I was 10, um, which actually nine is pretty late when you consider that a lot of pianos start their piano lessons at like, you know, like, like these pianos I know start when they were four or five. But anyways, um, when I was 10, I started making up songs in the piano. So my mm. initial origins for composing wasn't very initial origins for composing wasn't necessarily inspired by, oh, I want to sound like Mozart or Beethoven or anything like that. It was just like, I want to make up my own music. And it was kind of like a safe spot for me. Um, I would go to my room after school and it was just a safe spot. I would turn the piano, like I had a keyboard, turn the keyboard all the way down to the lowest volume and just start making up stuff, you know, like before making up songs, it was, I would write short stories, but then the thing was my parents would go into my computer and read them. So it didn't feel like a safe spot anymore. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was like, you know, painting and art, you know, but then again, it didn't feel like so safe, but music, it felt very safe for me. So I would um, make up my own songs like in secret. And there would be like these sounds that I didn't know at 10 years old, I didn't know theoretically what these were at the time. Mm -hmm. I knew I loved, like, I loved the sound, for example, a major seventh chords before I knew that they were major seventh mm -hmm. chords. Mm 
I knew there was some sort of major triad, and there's that note if you go that third above, and it sounds like an almost there note, and it's yearning to go to one and a half step up. So had these sounds I loved, and I wanted to create music with them. So really early on, I just loved to compose music. I wasn't thinking, oh, I want to sound like, yeah, Bach or Ravel or Debussy or, you know. Mm -hmm. um, then later on, um, I started realizing that a lot of these sounds that I really liked, you know, a lot of these sevenths and so forth, more often appeared in jazz mm -hmm. than in other music. So it really turned me on to really start to want to listen to a lot of jazz because I wanted to hear more of those sounds. Like I was just obsessed with harmony and I just wanted to hear these sounds and particularly jazz ballads. Like I was a sucker for ballads because I knew like usually when a ballad came on, that was where the most richness usually was going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I started like, you know, particularly listening to a lot of ballads, like start becoming really a fan, you know, a few leaders, years later of like Bill Evans, particularly I was mm -hmm. loved Bill, not only Bill Evans playing, but his tunes, I was in love with them. And then I think this was at some point, if we're talking now the big band specifically, someone in high school, I mean, I heard some of Ellington's writing, I heard some Count Basie's writing, might've heard, forget what other bands, I might've heard some of the earlier big bands like Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman writing, but someone in high school, gave me a CD of um, Thad Jones' Consummation album. Mm -hmm. And that like really did it there. As just like, just hearing like the fat sounds that Thad had, the fact that he used French horns and tuba for the opening and closing tracks, the colors he had in the woodwinds. Um, I particularly was obsessed with, actually, believe it or not, I know this is not usually the most popular track in the Consummation album. I was obsessed with the first track in the album, Dedication, and how mm -hmm. it started with this kind of like, like kind of mysterious ballad with these textures gradually overlaying. And then it blows off into this like blues that like starts with like the flat two chord in the middle. But it, I just thought it was like so cool. Um, so, uh, so if I had to pick like, probably the earliest like big band influence that really like caught my attention believe it or not it was Thad Jones I loved Thad Jones writing um so I was getting into big band writing and really loving that sound but then I also was really loving certain classical music I was really obsessed with actually the works of uh, Francis Poulenc actually oh. at the time his chamber works so I love like the emotional content of that and the emotional content of Debussy or the emotional content of Ravel, but I really love like the harmony and excitement of the big band world. So in my head, I was like thinking, well, someday I want to be able to create music that combines that emotional kind of like, you know, element of like classical music with this kind of rhythmic harmonic stuff of big band music. And then someone turned me on to Maria Schneider really late oh, yeah. high school mm -hmm. and so when i first heard and I, this was right when she released concert in the garden so i'm listening to the album and there's two things that automatically came in my mind one was oh my god this is exactly what i've been looking for mm -hmm. two because i was hoping to create what exactly like i was like looking for and be like oh that was gonna be a unique style believe it or not the other part in my head was like oh shit someone's already done that 
so so Mar so when I heard Maria's like out music and like I said this was concert in the garden was really like the bug that you know of Maria's sure, singing, sure. Like, like bit I was just like this like she was she became overnight a major like probably the biggest influence big band writing wise yeah. oh man and of course with Maria Schneider you get you're getting a big dose of Gil Evans and yeah. uh and you know and I you know being a trumpet player I have always loved the albums Miles, that Miles did with Gil Evans and, yes uh, and in fact so much so I wrote an arrangement for a concert band and flugelhorn solo of um, the uh, Concerto de Orange Juice. I tell tell my band members, Concerto de Oranges. Oh, because, yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. I, yes, uh, and uh, because it's such a beautiful piece, and, um, uh, and I'm going to play it this spring on flugelhorn with my band, with one of my other band members is conducting but gil evans had that rich harmonic language that you hear i think in maria schneider he, although he she did you know but but hers is unique i'm not saying that she's a clone i would not say yeah because i mean like i said i so yeah shortly after i think i heard some of maria's stuff i heard some of gil's stuff and i loved gil's stuff there is mm -hmm. something though i think it's the way i'm not sure what it is about if I had a pinpoint, there is something that Maria seems to kind of go beyond mm -hmm. what Gil is doing. Well, and I think it has something to do with the storytelling or kind of like the, there, there's more like, like Gil, like I said, is amazing. And I like, I, Gil mm -hmm. is one of my influences. There's mm -hmm. something about Maria's melodies or something and that the story that they tell there's that extra sense of yearning you can hear mm -hmm. in some of her music that um I think really always to me felt like okay Gil is definitely there but this is definitely a step beyond mm -hmm. so. yeah well I mean I think she took what she got from Gil and she extended it further yeah uh, that's what i think yeah she grew and she she was able to do that i i really you know when hearing you talk it just made me want to reach out and give you a hug because your origin story reminds me so much of my own i remember yeah. being in seventh grade band and there was a piece that we were playing out of our beginning band book called shadowlands waltz and it had sevenths in it and oh. I remember that was my favorite tune to play. Whenever our director said, who has a request? I would say, let's do Shadowland Waltz. And I love that harmony. And then like you were talking about ballads, I can remember just almost wearing out the grooves of uh, the album by Stan Kenton. Uh, oh. I can't remember which one of the live albums it is uh, where they open with Here's That Rainy Day. And it is the most gorgeous gorgeous uh uh harmonies and the way that and, and i don't remember who wrote the chart now or i mean who did the arrangement but you're right about ballads and, here's uh, who did the actually i'm looking believe okay. it or not i'm looking here's that rainy day uh who did it the might have been johnny richards but i'm not sure um because um, he had a was it was it on the uh, live at the uh, Redlands? Uh, I believe it album? is. Yes, the live okay. at Redlands. So it says the arranger is D. Barton. Oh, D. Barton. Okay, sure, sure. 
yeah, he did a lot of lot of great arrangements. But I always loved the Kenton Orchestra. But here's the other thing: I loved Thad and Mel too. And I yeah. remember I've told this story uh, the very first time I ever heard the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra was when PBS did a special from the Village Vanguard. Oh, and cool. it was on TV. That was the first time. And I, I was probably in high school or college. And then I had the opportunity to hear the Thad Jones, Mel Lewis big band twice on the only tour that they ever did in 1979. Because I happened to be at the Orange Coast Jazz Festival out in Costa Mesa and they had been, were played, they played there. And then somehow our I was uh, where I went to undergraduate school was Boise State University and our jazz ensemble director was able to get him to come do a concert there. And oh, cool. so within about a month of each of those, I heard them twice. And of course, I was I was always blown away. And when I used to teach uh, about uh, the, the Thad Jones, Mel Lewis band, I said, you know, this was a basically a kicks band for professionals on their night off, you know, Monday right. nights. My nights, yep. And Thad was not going to write any dumb, dumb guy parts, you know, for the second, yeah. third, and fourth players. He had to write good, intriguing lines. And that's one of the reasons his charge is so fun to play, because you don't have to just be playing the lead part to be playing some interesting lines. And, right. Uh, and, and cool harmonies and very tongue-in-cheek kinds of uh, writing. I mean, you know... I mean, even before Gordon Goodwin and some of his stuff, you know, hunting rabbits and all those other kinds of pieces that he's written, Thad, I think, had that wonderful kind of tongue-in-cheek approach to some of the uh, uh, things that he wrote. So I loved. I'm just right. I'm. I feel like I'm right there with you uh, yeah. in terms of in terms of some of those uh, inspirations because I love those music. Love that music. Excuse me. But uh, Erica, tell us a little bit about your creative process itself. First of all, what inspires you when you write? Um, it could be a whole slew of things. It's um, as much as, you no, know, it's always, I find it interesting, myself included, we want to always put things neatly in a box, be like, okay, this is what inspires me. This is always what inspires mm -hmm. me. And then this is how it developed from there. Mm -hmm. Um because honestly my music has been inspired by a lot of things both internal or intrinsic to the music as well as external to the music um over the years um so some of my pieces have been inspired by musical things like for example not on the album but one piece i wrote was i was inspired by chopin nocturne so mm -hmm. i kind of started writing a piece that kind of just you know started kind of like nocturne turn-esque thing and kind of made this kind of like morph into big band chart another one you know that is on the album um it's called real because i was really into getting into uh irish music and celtic music i bought a hammered dulcimer then eventually a tin whistle and i just wanted to try my hand at writing own real so that was also kind of intrinsic musically sometimes i can be inspired by a harmonic idea but then there's also pieces that are initially my kind of the kernel or the seed would be some sort of vision I had either literally or something um it's a little hard to say um sometimes when I 
have seen things like see nature or am in nature or see something else, I will hear music literally mm -hmm. coming out of it. So, mm -hmm. so like sometimes pieces are influenced by that, actually, like I've had a lot of pieces, I, I seem to have an obsession with water, even though none of the pieces in the album on the album itself are um, influenced by water. There are several big band charts, I think at least five big band charts I've written that are directly inspired by water, either hearing music literally after watching water trickle or in like a ravine, or that I want to convey something. So there have been pieces like that. Um, then there's been pieces of music that have been inspired. And some of this is on the album um, with struggles I've had with mental health, um, struggles I've had with some, you know, diagnosis and, and, you know, some mental illness. And I've been inspired by that too and wanting to convey that into music. So there have been a lot of different kind of kernels or seeds mm -hmm, over the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And not to say that this is the one way I will work, but I'd say most of the time, whatever that initial starting idea is, that's when I try to almost do like free association next. So mm -hmm. I'll do often, I'll have like a notebook. Um, I had like have these like moleskin notebooks that um where like one side it's lined you know with um staff paper and then the other side is blank which i actually really like because i like to often write verbal descriptions down or draw pictures mm -hmm. based on what i'm seeing in addition to musical ideas so i'll be doing a lot of free association sketches a lot of times again this is not always no we'd like to put neat boxes and everything but um i will draw musical sketches, I will draw pictures, I will write words and verbal descriptions, I will write orchestrational ideas I hear with something, I will write about, oh, I hear these type of harmonies, potentially. Mm -hmm. So I will then get in a lot of this kind of free association for a while. Sure. Well, and I then, I, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you're finished. No, you, go you go ahead, actually. Well, That's, yeah. I, was, I was just going to say, I'm always fascinated by how uh composers and think uh because i am also fascinated by a field called cognitive linguistics and if you're interested at all i i would suggest a, a book that i started with 25 years ago is by a, a psychologist named steven pinker who says tells us that like language is not what we say or what we write but rather what occurs in our uh, minds. And then, okay. and then we reconstruct that into means of communication. And I, the more and more I read about it, the more and more I began to think how this applies to musical thinking and musical expression. Um, because I'm right there with you. There's uh, many times when I will have a musical idea a phrase, a set of harmonies, whatever, that just pop into my head based on some sort of non-musical stimulus. Yeah. Because it's like as musicians, as people who are into music, we tend to maybe, per, you know, cognitively translate things that are in our perception and then translate that into uh, a musical idea much in the same way that through our five senses, it's really our brain 
that senses the smell, the sights, the taste, and so forth, vis-a-vis -vis our various sensory organs. And yeah. so I, I just, I'm right there with you in that, you know, it's really hard to objectify a subjective experience. And, uh, yeah. but I go ahead and ask anyway, just because I'm always curious as to what people will say. But uh, uh, that whole idea of uh, applying cognitive linguistics to music, I haven't read a whole lot of literature. This is like me freestyling my own kind of thinking. Uh, and I don't know, there's probably someone else out there that's written about it. But anyhow, I, I you know, I, I, I'm right there with you. I mean, I think it's almost like it feels to me sometimes like, and again, this doesn't happen with every piece I write, but I think it happens enough to wonder. Um, I know there's like, obviously you've heard of synesthesia, you know, where people oh, yes. see, you know, colors when they hear tones and vice versa. I don't see colors when I hear tones or vice versa, but I do often either see elements when I hear certain sounds mm -hmm. or vice versa, if I see a swirl in a painting, I will hear music coming out of that. Or if I hear, or if I see snow falling, I will hear sounds coming out of that. It's almost like, feels like a slightly different type of synesthesia. I don't know if it's technically is or not. I mean, I guess it kind of, I mean, if you look at the definition, right, it's about, I think it has to do with something with the crossing of the senses. So, mm -hmm. Um, or sometimes like if I hear music, I will feel in a certain part of my body resonate. Mm. So there is that kind of cross mm -hmm. sense too. Um, so again, not every piece is always inspired or directly influenced by that, but there have been at a lot of pieces that have, or moments of pieces where, okay, I was like sitting by a lake and I literally heard these sounds come out of it. I, I don't, I, I'm right. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I'm right with you. And I'll tell you why, because as you were just now talking, the moment you said swirling, I mean, I heard strings. Yeah. Swirling sound. And when you talked about snow, I, all of a sudden I could hear a very sort of almost uh, light piano sound, you know, I mean, it's not so, I, I think it's, it's, it's why being a music person is so cool because we do have, you know, because music is one of our intelligences. Yeah. And it's more developed in others in some than it is in others. I mean, I, I, I sometimes think musically lay people or the musical muggles of the world, if you will, don't always get the same well, I don't say get it because that sounds very pejorative, but they don't fully appreciate or understand it the same way that people that are musically trained and very perceptive about music. It's not like we have ESP, musically speaking, but in some ways it is. I mean, there's those seven intelligences. Like I, I read the uh, Howard Gardner Creating Minds, oh, yeah. okay. where he goes like, yeah, right, and he gives an right example of each, and Stravinsky's mm -hmm. the example for the musical. Um, I mean, we could say, yeah, musical muggles, but like I could, then someone could say to me, oh, kines I'm a kin kinesthetic muggle because, you know, maybe right. I don't get movement the way that, you know, sure. someone like Martha Graham was the example exactly. for that one. Exactly, exactly. We, we all have, you know, we all have our strengths and our weaknesses and we've all right. been given gifts, but we don't necessarily open all the boxes. You know what I mean? Like we have... There's certain things like my wife and I, for example, 
Um, she is a PhD music theorist and can sit down and analyze a piece of music six ways from Sunday in so fast. I'm just like, I don't know how you do it. Me, I'm more of a his music history and lit person. I like history. I like to look at musical styles and have an understanding how this style differs from this style and so forth. And when it comes to historical facts, she is lost. Right. You know, I mean, she admits that. And I admit that I'm not as strong in music theory as she is. And then when it comes to other things outside of music, well, I'm a complete klutz. Ha, that's like I, me too. <laughs> I, I, I remember the one time when I was a kid, I tried to do a tune-up on my car. I screwed it up so bad. I had to go, you know, it's just not me. I'm not good with tools. I'm not good with that sort of thing. I never, you know, if there's any, ever an issue here at home, I, I told my wife, I said, I am not Bob Vila. I said, if you need a light bulb screwed in or you need, you know, I can do that. But anything beyond that, we're calling a pro. Now, we all have our own uh, strengths and weaknesses, but I think those of us in the music world, we do have a particular sensitivity to music, music stimulus, musical thinking. And and you're right about that feeling it in your body. There's, yeah. you know, I mentioned earlier how, you know, it tickled my aesthetic insides. I mean, there's, that's where we feel that, you know, and it's, right. uh, when, you know, when you know it's good. But anyway, so it's it's not weird. It's not it's just the way we are it is <laughs> and i love it you know i love it that i can do that and and uh, and 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 i spent years trying to help uh you know students at the university try to at least open up the cur you know the curtain a little wider for them in terms of music because i taught music preach and i taught jazz history and appreciation and and uh you know, and when I did teach, uh, and I would teach about Duke Ellington, I used to use that metaphor that, you know, or tell them that, you know, before he got seriously into music, he was a painter. And so that that kind of thinking continued because when he wrote his arrangements, he thought so much in terms of colors. Color. Yeah, you can you know, definitely hear that. <laughs> well, and then he was writing for specific people in his in his orchestra that he knew what he could call on them to sound like and, and so on and so forth. And uh, certainly for his time, he expanded the color palette of the big band and, uh, you know, used, uh, you know, combinations of instruments in, in ways that were novel uh, for his time. But I want to get, kind of get back to you. Would you talk about the big band as an ensemble for musical expression and the various approaches to the elements of music you may take to create different colors and forms of musical expression. Sorry, can you, I, I, no, I, 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 I want to answer that this is actually, it sounds great. Can you just kind of either say that again, because my brain no, might not have processed no, not that or reward it. <laughs> yeah. I am going to, I am going to. Uh, okay. So after my long drawn out description of Duke Ellington, I would like right. you to talk about the big band as an ensemble for musical expression and the various approaches to the elements of music you may take to create different colors and forms of musical expression. Okay. So I think, I'm trying to think how I wanna go down this angle for a second. I think the first thing I would say is just kind of reiterating a little bit before is that I do have that very kind of synesthetic kind of approach and kind of this idea of like 
when I create music a lot, I want to create worlds to be immersed in. Okay. Is this kind of the right direction, by the way? You're going right. right. That's great. Okay. okay, great. Because this is because, like, all right, I just want to make sure this is, I'm answering kind of the right direction of the question. I'm not going off on a tangent. So, so yeah, I want to create these worlds that you can be almost absorbed in. So it's like when I was a kid, I loved reading books and I just loved reading like fiction. And I just love being in these worlds to the point where you anywhere like reality didn't exist. You were right inside, whether it was I remember when I was a kid, I read the Goosebumps books and it was just like, you know, and you're like, <laughs> and there's, I put this in quotes, horror, you know, in it, but like, I love like the worlds that they created or um, other fiction that I would read and I just getting lost in into those worlds. And so when creating a piece of music, I want to immerse the listener for however long the piece lasts into that world where you're completely absorbed, nothing else exists outside of that. So that you can kind of just feel that connection with that. Cause like, I loved that connection as a kid. So that's part of the thing when I'm creating like, big band charts, I, I think about there's a real opportunity to create these worlds that may, and you can do this with a chamber piece, but I feel like when you have a larger ensemble, you have more opportunities because you do have all these colors. And I do think a lot of times orchestrationally, I think, you know, one of um, my pet, sorry, I, I probably sound like I'm going tangent, blah, 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 blah. but that's okay. <laughs> um, you go right ahead. Okay. <laughs> so um, one thing that actually really gets me slightly annoyed sometimes is people are like, well, can't you do this just with like less instruments or just to rearrange, you know, for different instrumentation. And when I conceive a piece, the orchestration is just as much integral as the harmony or the melody or the development or the rhythm of it. It's just as much a color and what helps create that world. Like um, I even remember a few years ago, someone asked, wanted to play real, but they didn't have the flutes. Because the beginning of real, the idea is that um, I wanted to make it sound like you are an authentic, like Irish session, you know, and like someone's like, you know, playing like a reel or a jig or whatever. And there's this joy mm -hmm. felt. And so usually you hear tin whistles or you hear fiddles or violins and you might hear a bodron, you know, and a couple other instruments. So I really wanted to kind of immerse into that world first. So when people are like, can we play real, but can there not be flutes? We don't have flutes. Mm is taking away that whole absorption into that world so it can transform. At least for me, at least, that just killed it. Cause I did, I tried rearranging it and I did have it, you know, like let them, you know, play it and it killed it for me. So a lot of times I do think, I think color orchestration is huge. On top of that, the musicians, cause like I said a lot earlier, you know, these music, a lot of these musicians have been with us forever. I, I don't just hear clarinet, for example. I hear John Lowry is our main. I mean, the, all, the, all the reed section plays clarinet, but John Lowry, like who plays the third reed chair, we put the majority of the clarinet stuff in his chair because we love his playing. We hear mm -hmm. him playing clarinet. We don't just hear anyone playing clarinet. We hear him playing clarinet. Mm -hmm. You know, likewise, you know, we write something for trombone or alto flugelhorn because scott reeves plays alto flugelhorn and we uh -huh. hear scott specifically scott reeves playing that so uh -huh. we're writing for we're hearing not just 
instrumentation, but we are hearing these musicians and we're hearing their approach and their style. You know, we're hearing uh -huh, like imagining uh -huh, them soloing uh -huh, uh -huh. in in our head. So that's part of our approach too, is just the idea of creating these worlds, using color and orchestration as part of it, and then hearing the musicians too. You know, being inspired. There, there is so much to that. I, I, I'll give you just a quick example. Uh, a big band that I played with for a while. I, I haven't been with them uh, since COVID, but um, we used to do concerto for Cootie. Okay. Yeah. And I played, <laughs> and I played Cootie Williams' part. Do you That's think cool. I could sound like at all like Cootie Williams? No, because I'm not Cootie Williams. I'm not Cootie. I couldn't. I couldn't even try as best as I could to imitate Cootie. But Duke Ellington wrote that for Cootie to play because right. he had a particular personality. And so when what I hear you telling me is that you're thinking beyond just the color of the instrument, because we all know a clarinet sounds like, or a saxophone or a trombone, right. but we also know as musicians that the way an instrument is played can influence its sound. Yeah, totally. And it, I was going to say, on. especially in the jazz world, in the classical world, you know, there are certain, there, there's probably a little more sameness or similarity, uh, say, between orchestral players in terms of tone quality and the kinds of things. I mean, there are some differences, yeah. yes. But with jazz, you really hear a much more distinctive kind of uh, individual sound. And that is very true. And I think that that's what you're 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 getting at. The other that I you know, and I used to tell this to my students as well. As I said, you know, an arranger because they used to ask me, okay, what's the difference between composition and arranging? And I say, well, an arranger is someone who takes an already written piece of music but finds a new beautiful way to express it, and maybe uses different, you know, like an artist has a palette of of colors. And then takes that brush and mixes a little bit of this color with this other color and gets a whole brand new color. And that's what we're working with in music. Because I, you know, I think that, and this is what I used to tell my students, I says, when we listen to music, we all sense a beat. We all listen to uh you know, lyrics, we don't always understand them. And we also can pick up on a melody. But there's two elements of music that we very much don't listen or hear, unless we consciously listen for them. And that is texture and timbre. Yeah. And, and those are some beautiful, beautiful parts of the music. And when I could finally get a student to go, you know, uh, had that aha moment, I it was like a slam dunk. I I felt like victory. You know? I think that was always something I've honestly always did hear in music as texture and mm -hmm. timbre. Like even like, you know, if I'm in was in high school and playing in like youth orchestra, and I remember like I played bass clarinet in youth orchestra, and just hearing the colors that were created, not just between what you know whatever I'd play in bass clarinet with another instrument, but just hearing you know across the orchestra, it always enthralled me. Yeah, yeah, I so. with you. I had I had my world opened up a few weeks ago. I went to a uh, performance of uh, uh, Mahler's Fourth Symphony in a uh. what they call uh, Beyond the Score, and you know in Mahler's Fourth Symphony, there's a section where he writes this unison passage for four flutes, 
And the question was brought up, well, why didn't he just write it for one single flute? Well, the particular uh, description was that he was looking for a sound that would be more childlike because he was at that portion in there where it's about child wonderment and so forth. And I thought, well, that made a heck of a lot of sense because they had the orchestra was live on stage and they played it with a single solo flute and they did it with the four flutes in unison. Okay. So they actually demonstrated this. That's so cool. That's, this is something the Chicago symphony does and then it can go out to other orchestras. And I was, I was experiencing this with the Madison symphony orchestra in Madison, Wisconsin. And so the first half of the program is sort of like the the teaching and taking you through the piece and explaining what Mahler's thinking might have been and so forth and what what music and then the second half is just the performance of the work without interruption so that you gain greater insight and so forth. And you're right, even I mean, even when I would talk about texture, the idea of, you know, the thinnest texture you could have would be a. Uh, a solo instrument playing all by itself right then the minute you add another instrument playing in unison that you now thicken the texture have that second instrument play a different pitch you thicken the texture further because now you're talking about exactly and and so forth and then you know on and on from there so it's it's interesting that uh that's what i'd really try to get people to listen to now like with jazz I used to love to pick apart the like the rhythm section. And I used to have these CDs, these Jamie Abersall CDs, right? Okay. You know. Yeah, I know that you exactly you're talking about. Exactly. I'm sure you do. And you know, you can separate. So like if you just put it all on the left track, you get the bass and the and part of the drum set. And if you put it all on the right track, you get the piano and the piano and yes. Right. And I would isolate those things on a particular tune I was teaching them so that they could figure out, okay, this is what the rhythm section's doing. Now let's add the horns and here's the whole chart, but don't lose sight of what's going on with those other musicians. Because uh, in jazz, it's all about, um, you know, the interaction and so forth. Of course, we don't get that really with a recording as much as we do in live performance, but it was the best I could do on the, you know, in the classroom. But that's... uh, you know, that's really cool that you, you know, you already think in that uh, kind of idea. And we've already discussed, you know, your, your thinking, uh, I was going to ask you about, you know, what comes first, melody, rhythm, chord changes, but I think you've addressed that already. Uh, and, and then I'm going to draw, uh, uh, maybe this is a, a redundant question, but I assume you keep some kind of sketchbook of, of heads and vamps and other musical ideas that later you can pull out to, to put a chart together. Yeah, so I like I mean I mentioned earlier I have I particularly like the Moleskin books. I do have all sorts of other various papers strewn around, very whether it's just loose sheets, whether it's larger. I have, you know, tried I know some people really love using larger sketch pads, you know, pads when mm-hmm. they when they um when you're sketching. For some reason and I've tried doing this several, several times. For some reason, that's never worked for me. I don't know why. It just maybe it gives me subtly some anxiety because I feel like I have to fill up the whole pad at once. Whereas, like, if I just have like, a smaller notebook, it's like okay, I can kind of just hone in on these few ideas. I know, yeah. But anyways, I know some people like that larger format score paper for sketching. So I tend to like 
letter size or less when I'm sketching, but I do, yes, I have tons of sketchbooks that I do have of various sizes and various loose papers. Um, I'm not in my apartment right now, but normally I have, um, next to my piano, I have like a little cork board where I have thumbtacks and I can like, if I have individual papers, I just want to post up, you know, for now to kind of stare at or kind of make connections. I have things like that, that I sometimes use the process. Um, one thing that's interesting though, I, I, I have to say, and maybe this will change at some point. When I go back and look at my previous ideas, I don't tend to go back and often use those ideas into future pieces. Mm -hmm. It's kind of more, again, it's kind of like, um, there's this other book, I do a lot of reading. So like this other book kind of reminds me slightly of instead or more the process of um, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, where she talks about doing the morning pages. So the first thing in the morning, you do the stream of conscious few pages in the morning and that kind of frees up your creative space so it almost feels like sometimes when i'm sketching it's not so much so i go back to these ideas and borrow things at some point but again it gets the stuff out there um mm -hmm. if i had to say anything though what i have noticed is there's been a couple pieces where i would have i'd want to convey something and i would have almost what i would say are false starts actually i think a good example is on our album, there's a piece in there called And the Tires One Keeps Spinning um, that is about this analogy. It's really about going through a depression episode and all the different aspects of that. But there's the analogy of this tire swing consistently spinning and kind of gaining momentum and going to this dark abyss. And there was a couple of times without calling it that title, at least when I was first sketching, there's a couple of times where I've wanted to write a piece around that theme. And I've had completely different starts to that piece over the years, but I would never build on it. And then one day I was just kind of freely improvising at the piano. And all of a sudden it was like one of those aha moments. This is that piece. So it's not necessarily that I go back and be like, oh, well, I'm going to use this idea and reflect, but it's more like, Am I allowed to even, am I allowed to use the S word, the S-H-I-T word? Sure, go ahead. Okay, yeah, it's more like, <laughs> I, uh, I I sometimes do the sketching more like to get the shit out mm -hmm. so that eventually it does lead to something that there's that, okay, here it is. Here's the idea, but that shit need to get out first no. to free the way for the right ideas. I, I hear you. I mean, you know, when I interviewed Alan Ferber, he told me that whenever he has writer's block, he will purposely set out to write the worst piece of music he can write just to get <laughs> the ideas flowing. Because, it sounds like yes. what Kenny Wheeler said, or not Kenny Wheeler, not I said Kenny Wheeler. I meant Kenny Wheeler. Wow, why did I mix them both um, up? But yeah, yeah the anyway, effortless right. mastery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, you have to do something to prime the pump. You have to do something to get the get it going, get it flowing. So that's that's great. Um, so yeah, I mean, those kind of ideas and, and sketches that you make, uh, if they serve whatever purpose they serve and everyone has them in one, uh, one way or another, I want to sh uh, shift gears just a little bit. You also do some teaching and yeah. what do you tell your students who aspire toward a career in music and what is the best piece of advice you can offer based on your experience and what you have observed about other musicians? Ooh, this is a great question. And 
I think I have a pretty clear answer actually, because over the years, and what I notice actually too, because I, I teach a whole variety of students. I teach anywhere from professional musicians who are looking to build comp um, on composition and specifically work in composition. I teach anywhere from that to little kids piano lessons. So I teach like essentially the whole gamut of age ranges and abilities and kind of anywhere from like the spectrum of piano to composition. Um, one thing I think is a theme over the years I've noticed telling students regardless where they are on any of that spectrum is to teach them whatever you really love, it's possible to pursue it. Mm-hmm but you do have to be willing to put the effort and keep that almost, it's almost, I hate to say it's almost a single track mindset. You have to be able Mm -hmm. to keep that single track mindset. And if you are able to keep that mindset and if that's, this is something you really want, you will find a way to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's better to do that than to be like, oh, well, I'm just, I want to do this, but I'm just gonna settle for this. Because at the end of the day, I mean, especially nowadays in this world, you could have the most well-paying job and lose it the next day. There's like layoffs anytime now. The economy mm-hmm. constantly shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is even like, so when I even teach some younger piano students that specifically don't even want to go into music, but they have a passion for something else. Like I've had, I remember once a student who really wanted to get into fashion design, for example, or another one that really wanted to become a painter or another one that, you know, wanted to study, uh, really study marine biology, you know, and I'm just, you know, whatever you want to do. First of all, it's possible, but you will have to put in the work. And then I do talk to them about, well, have you considered, you know, doing these extracurriculars or doing these summer things to really build because you do whatever you do choose you got to put in the time and you got to put in the craft into it and you gotta you can't just sit around and be like oh this might be interesting and you know not really serious if, if this is something that you really want to do mm-hmm. so that's kind of I mean for me I mean part and maybe I don't know if this is projection or just because or if I'm like generally reflecting but my journey getting there has been very um determined Mm -hmm. so like when i was in you know uh middle school i would start practicing a lot of extra hours you know just Mm -hmm. kind of freely on my own um i would compose songs you know on and then input them in i had i didn't have sibelius back then i had like this really horrible very cheap music notation program, but I would, you know, input songs into the computer. Um, When I was in high school, I purposely sought out that during my free period, instead of um, being at study hall or even lunch, sometimes I would accompany the chorus and and I would seek out to play in pit orchestras, you know, and and Mm -hmm. really build on that skill. So I would actually seek out these opportunities. Mm -hmm. So when someone is really wanting to pursue something, it was kind of I sometimes tell them a little bit, you know, what I did, you know, to kind of get to where I was to make sure that it 
it became a reality and was practical for me. So then I'd be like, okay, well, what's the equivalent in this case? So when do fashion design, have you looked into summer fashion design programs? Mm -hmm. Have you like did, you know, some of these online classes or and done tried some of the stuff that they're doing? So um, for anyone, and there have been some students I've had that are, um, again, like I said, I've taught people who are already professionals. So let's say if I go to high school students that really want to pursue music, I've had some high school students that have gone on to music colleges and um, on scholarships and stuff. And so I will be like, okay, well, this was my journey. I'm not saying you have to exactly copy this, but you know, this is the reality. If you want to get into this program and do this, you will need to spend this much time on your mm -hmm. instrument or your craft. Um, you might want to consider joining these ensembles or these activities. You might want to consider taking, if there's an AP music theory class at your school, you might want to consider taking that. So I will guide them, you know, kind of towards that discipline if that's something that they really want. Mm -hmm. I, 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 again, I wish I could reach out and hug you because I used to do the similar things with my students. I, you know, I used to, have, I, where I taught was a, uh, a two-year liberal arts uh, institution that was a transfer institution. We basically, I used to, I used to like to say we were, we were an academic mash unit. We'd bring people in, teach them how to be good college students and then send them on to a baccalaureate institution. But when I would advise students, whether they were music or not, I'd always say, well, I'm in the uh, how to make dreams come true business. Yes. And I would say to them, I said, I, I'm a music person and this is my dream that's come true. What do you dream about? What do you want to do? And then exactly. talk with them about how. Uh, you know, what those kind of, just like what you're saying, have you considered this? Have you considered this? And I will never forget probably one of the most uh, uh, in some ways heartfelt, but humorous also experiences I had. I had a student come in, talk to me and I said, what do you dream about? He says, I want to work in outer space. Cool. Inside. I was thinking, well, okay, Captain Kirk, let's, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I didn't say outwardly, but inside I was, you know, I said, okay, what kinds of work do you think you would do in outer space? He said, well, I'm, I'm pretty good with tools and mechanics. I said, okay. And I took that student and we went over to the academic success center where there was a library of, uh, I don't even remember what the book was called now, but it was a government publication and it talked about the future of certain jobs and the kinds of education you would need and so forth. So I said, all right, let's see what we can find here. If by golly, if I didn't find space station mechanic and I said, all right, let's, I mean, this is for real. Right. Yeah. This is someone who's projected to the and, you know, and we do have a space station in space. Right. And probably things break and have to be fixed. And I, so I went through and I said, OK, great. We found a position you can aspire to. And here's it is telling you what the education background you've got to have. And so and, and he said to me, because, of course, there's a lot of physics and a lot of, you know, so forth. He's, oh, no, I'm not very good at math. I said, well, you're going to have to improve. You know, yep. you'll make it happen if you want to do this bad enough. So, you know, I think that uh, helping people 
you know, realize I used the, the other thing I, I would tell my students is always remember ABC backwards. C, anything you can conceive. B, if you believe, A, you can achieve. Beautiful. But you have to believe really strongly. And when it comes you to, have to music, believe. when it comes to anything, you can't just be a dilettante and be really successful at it. Unless nope. you happen to be one of those magical people who can be a jack of all trades, master of none, and, you know, just kind of fall into things. But music, especially, you cannot be a dilettante. You can't, you can't really fall into it. Even if you like you naturally were given every talent possible and didn't, ha you still have to put in, you know, that time and like, you know, putting, making these connections and working like with, because part of the music too, you're developing through experience and you have to have these experiences. Right. And so like when I was growing, you know, again, growing up, so I made sure, like I said, you know, I went out of my way, like no one ever like was like, oh, hey, you want to accompany the course? I asked to accompany the course, which actually indirectly led to via a couple other things with the school indirectly led to some of my first professional work. I eventually mm -hmm. accompanied summer musical theater camps and I got paid to do mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I asked to play in the pit of like, you know, this, like, God forbid, I asked to play in the pit of like school musicals and be a rehearsal accompanist for that. You know, I actually asked those things. I auditioned for youth orchestras. I composed my music. I got um, musicians together to make amateur recordings of it, you know, so mm -hmm. I'd have things for college. You know, I, when I was 20, I led my first version of, it was without my, you know, uh, co-leader, you know, because I didn't meet my co-leader at the time, but I got got my first big band together near where I grew up in Albany when I was twenty, and put mm -hmm. together a big band because I, you know, it was something I always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, you gotta like, yeah, you gotta want it enough, and you gotta be willing to put in, like, you know, reach out and create your opportunities, Se seek out opportunities, but then even create your own opportunities mm -hmm. where there might not be once it exists. I agree. I agree. You know, and like I tell my students, now we live in Wisconsin. Uh, so I tell my students, remember that the money you make from a polka gig is just as green as the money you make from a jazz gig. So don't yeah. ever turn down a polka gig. You know? Right. And you can learn something from these gigs too. Oh, oh my you can goodness. Always, yeah. Oh yeah. Especially if you're playing uh, uh, polkas that are of uh, uh, Polish derivation, because in Polish polka, they use the button concertina and the button oh. concertina can only play in two keys, yeah. A and E. What does that do to a trumpet player? Yeah. It's all <laughs> those, yeah. B and F sharp. B and F sharp. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, did I get an education the day I sat in with those, those guys and having to play everything in either B or F sharp. Well, anyway. She got one of those trumpets that like transpose and just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if if there was one, if I had an F sharp trumpet or something, anyway. Uh, well, they actually had like A, like, so like, you know, I played clarinet through high school, you know, they had, yeah. you know, A clarinets, especially back for the day, they had, you know, like yeah. A clarinets specifically because some of the, when you get to some of those more challenging keys, there is literally some limits with the key work that mm -hmm. you have, you know, between your pinkies. I mean, now they make clarinets that, take care of that issue, but there were key work issues, you know, a lot of times that um, where you even have to slide a finger because you run out of ways with your fingers. So they had like the A clarinet 
instead of the B flat clarinet for some pieces. Yeah. Well, I'll always go back to what my uh, jazz improv teacher, Rich Madison, used to say. There's no such thing as a hard key, just ones that haven't been practiced enough. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was his thinking. Well, anyway, kind of moving along, because uh, we, you know, we, my gosh, we've been at this for a good long while, and it's been a pleasure <laughs> of an experience, let me tell you. It's been fun. I, I enjoy it. Um, I was going to ask you if you thought that big band music has changed over the last 50 years, but I think that's a redundant question because I think, of course, it has. Of course it has. And I think. So the more, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. One thing I really respect, whether it's Duke Ellington, whether it's Thad, whether it's Maria, whether it's my peers that I see on the scene is I feel like a lot of my favorite writers, they're not thinking this is what big band is supposed to sound like. They're taking whatever is true to them and they're making it their own. Uh And I feel like that's what causes, it's not some like, you know, it's like, of course it's, and the reason why it's changing is because of the people who are creating this music itself. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Okay. Yeah, that played right into my next question. You must have looked ahead. <laughs> oh, I, I, I really wasn't. I, I was just no. saying that that's what I think is well, so beautiful about it. I think that's what's magical because you played right into what I was going to ask you next because obviously big bands today are not dance orchestras. I mean, there are the dance part. orchestras. There are some, but yeah. <laughs> but, but for the most part, modern modern big band writing is not oriented towards creating music for dancing. It's 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 more of a you know, like a symphonic chamber group in a jazz flavor. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I once heard this said that uh, the jazz big band is America's contribution to uh, uh, classical music because the big band uh, is is a unique ensemble. And uh, the fact that it swings or it has improvisation, it doesn't necessarily separate it from what goes on, uh, you know, say in the classical world, so to speak. It's just a different style, just like, you know, and, and we actually do hear elements of that kind of, you know, swing and, and jazz elements in what's considered classical music. There's so much, you know, uh, inter, inter uh, hybridization, I guess, might be the right word. Because, and, and I don't want to say any more because I don't want to answer this question for you. You kind of intimated at it because I was going to ask you the more important question is not whether or not it has changed, but what is driving the change? in in big band music or in jazz and 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 hear what you have to say about that so first like you know i mean and this probably just sounds cliche because probably everyone's heard this quote before i mean first of all what happened is like the quote just pops into my head of duke ellington saying there's two kinds of music there's good music and there's the other kind mm-hmm. right so i feel like for me and I know that there might be some backlash against this. I never liked much the idea of genre. And I, I never liked, you no, know, I feel like you can create beautiful music 
And I feel like sometimes there's the limit of, well, does it have these elements in it? Oh, well, it can't be jazz. But then, okay, you try to take that same music. Okay, well, could it be? And then you have the classical, you know, people being like, oh, well, it doesn't have these elements. So it's not, but it can still be beautiful music. And so I think beautiful music is beautiful music. It's like, did you put, you know, did you put your, you know, are you clear with your vision? Did you spend time learning the craft to make that clear vision into something that can be translated into sound? Um, did mm-hmm. you, are you putting heart into this? Um, what is your statement? And unfortunately, I feel like sometimes we're so caught up in, doesn't have this jazz element or enough, you know, blues in it. Doesn't have, you know, enough of that swing element. You're going to the classical side. Does it, you know, sound, you know, have this like, follow these rules of atonality or follow these rules of, you know, what's, you know, um, sonata form is if we were to really go like back, you know? Right. Um, instead, I think, just wondering, like, can we be thinking of, can we just hear the sound just for what it is? Mm-hmm. And then I think if we really start listening to music just for hearing what it is, I think we'll understand more whatever the composer's saying, whatever the musicians in the ensemble are saying, because I think there's a lot more depth and especially a lot of the music I love listening to. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot more depth then, oh, well, this person's just taking swing, or this person is just taking this folk song element. There's a lot more beyond that. I feel like we're missing out a whole lot if we're listening, okay, this is this genre, or this is that element. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, again, kind of going back to the question, it's it's the musicians themselves that are making that change by being true to who mm-hmm. they are, being true to their vision. Mm-hmm. That's what's causing the evolution rather than being like, well, it's this and this and this element. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the human, it's by being a human. That's that's a great, great way to describe it. Um, you know, because music is a human endeavor. Uh, the creation, uh, certainly the, uh, the consumption of music, uh, both on a individual and also in a more communal way, uh, yes, I, I, you know, I, I love what you're talking about. Uh, I agree. I think that genres are uh, uh, an artificial byproduct of, of. Well, I hate to point a finger because every time you point a finger, there's three pointing back. But maybe the recording industry, you know, they want to track okay. their sales. They want to know who's buying what and what, you know, and these kind of things and these, all these various labels. And and um, and why can't we just say it's music? I, I agree. That being said, we can totally like, I respect the roots of jazz music. I respect the roots of classical music. And mm-hmm. there is something, but there is the reason why it was made. It was made from, again, these humans being, you know, what they've experienced and, mm-hmm. you know, bringing that out through their music, through their horns. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, again, why jazz was in the first place is through, you know, the experience, you know, and through, you know, a lot of trauma and, you know, the, you know, the black American music and 
that experience that mm -hmm. these people have gone through and that's what made it beautiful mm -hmm. and i think you know for anyone out there what is your experience and how does that come out through music mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no i agree i think i think that's a beautiful way to look at it and you know we've got so many people that are you know crossing i mean like um you know i think about um Terrence Blanchard, you know, he's written two mm -hmm. operas for the Metropolitan Opera now. Yeah. And I remember the last time I saw Terrence was at a jazz club in Milwaukee, probably 25 years ago. He was here with his uh, quartet. And, uh, you know, and you think, oh, this is a guy who also writes opera. Uh, and certainly we can point back to people like uh, Leonard Bernstein and George Gershwin. And, you know, it's not like, uh, okay, today I'm going to wear my popular music cap and tomorrow I'm going to wear my classical music cap. I'm just going to write whatever is inspiring to me. So anyway, great. I think that's, that's really great. Well, I'm, you know, uh, I'm going I'm curious to know something. Now you are conducting Sam Blakesley's new recording project. Yes. We're going are into you, the studio in May. Oh, in May. Okay. Yes. Are, are you contributing any arrangements for his recording? No, it's all Sam's music. Sam okay. wrote a a lot of music actually i think it's going to be a double album he wrote a lot of music yeah. and um it's yeah he it's amazing music so i'm just thrilled to be hope you know hoping to bring out the best in the ensemble i mean i, I feel like a conductor's job is to take what's on the page try to be as true to the statement as possible bring out the best of the musicians and i'm really looking forward to doing that okay so you're going to be working with sam who will be playing in the ensemble and yes. is the writer of the charts and the yes. producer is going to be alan ferber, alan ferber. who is another yes. big band leader big band writer so as a conductor how much interpretive leeway or input will you have working with sam and and alan so we're actually already been in some talks about you know like okay how are we to approach the session and i mean all i can do is i can give i mean i've given some my input and my experience but I can do that and then I can respect whatever route that they want to take because right. what worked for me might not be the way that they want to work and that's totally okay. So okay. I'm giving, you know, I have given my input about a couple of things like, okay, well, what if, you know, I'm not going to say what, but I'm, you know, like, what if we try this or that, you know, and mm -hmm. whether they choose to do that or not, it's totally, you know, at the end of the day, that's, you know, really up to Sam at the end of the day. Sure. Um, as far as, again, when I've worked with other ensembles, I've conducted a lot of other ensembles in the past. Like I said, I've you know conducted sometimes with Remy's ensemble for your mm -hmm. performances. I've conducted with Meg Okura's Pan-Asian Chamber Jazz Ensemble for her recording session. Um, conducted with this group back in the day called the Dome Experience. Um, there's been other ensembles I've worked with. And again, I feel like the most important thing as a conductor to do is to find the essence of what the composer is doing being as true to that as possible relaying that through the, to the musicians and also but also you know having a respect for everyone involved in the project so making mm -hmm. the experience for the musicians as enjoyable and as clear as possible mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I, I will always i mean what i have done a lot as a conductor is i've always been like should we try this? You know, are, what about trying this? So I always do it in what if. I don't ever be like, oh, well, it should be this way. Because mm -hmm. in the end of the day, unless it's my own music, mm -hmm. it's not my own music. And, I you know, understand. I want to, as a composer, I always want 
myself, I know I want my music treated with as much respect as possible. I want to do the same, you know, for other, you know, whoever I'm conducting for. So I will always be like, do you want to try this or what about this? But I'm always open to a no. Mm -hmm. So you're actually, in a sense, adding another interpretive voice. You're not just counting the charts off. You're actually, you know. In the end of the day, I'm not trying to throw in myself into it. I'm trying to throw in, is this what you're looking for or a possibility? And in the end of the day, it's still up to them. Exactly. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's probably much different when you're working with the, you know, a living, breathing composer arranger who's there in the room with you than, say, uh, you know, if you're, you know, conducting a, a Beethoven symphony and you can. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I was just kind of curious because I think, uh, you know, musically lay people would go, well, doesn't a conductor of a jazz ensemble just go one, two, one, two, three, oh. four, you know, that sort of thing. And but this is so much more than that, of course. And then trying to dig out, dig, you know, get down to suck all the marrow out of what's what's there and really make something happen. So. Oh, I hate the idea of when people are like, oh, well, it's jazz. It doesn't really need a conductor. I mean, right. I think, first of all, yes, a lot in the, a lot of the tradition, a lot of the music didn't need always a lot of conducting, but I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And one is, unfortunately, in the New York City culture, you don't have, unless you're the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra or the Mingus Big Band, you don't get to perform on a weekly ba- basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first thing is these bands back in the day, they're playing every night or they're touring like always, you know, they're mm-hmm. always together. They're able to breathe and learn this music. You know, they don't need someone up there, <laughs> you know, helping out because they're always with this music, you know, nowadays, um, musicians, they might be playing in our ensemble, but they might also be playing in another 10 other ensembles, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the, these gigs are not on a weekly basis or even a monthly basis. I hear you. Um, so I think, first of all, there is a need for a conductor a lot in that sense. Second of all, um, I feel like um, the complexity, not to say that music wasn't complex back then, but there is a, another layer of complexity. A lot of times now there's shifting meters a lot. There's things where not the whole, all the trumpets are playing together all the time together. There might be a couple playing and then this trumpet comes in here to play this different line. There's a whole layer of complexity now that makes it harder yeah. to play perform this music. Um, second of all, I do believe as a conductor, I do, I mean, I mentioned kind of before this whole synesthesia idea. I believe everything is energy. So I believe that there is a way to help bring out the best musicality as possible through the, not just the, you know, by beating, but the way I'm beating that, the way I'm using my other hand for gestures, that that can influence the energy or bring out more of the music than let's say if there isn't someone there in front of the band. Mm-hmm. So when people are like, oh, well, it's jazz, it doesn't need a conductor. Mm-hmm. You know, do we, do we really just need someone beating time because mm-hmm. you know, the rhythm section, mm-hmm. right? Maybe I don't need to beat time all the time, but maybe I can help out the musicians, you know, first of all, like, you know, hearing 
how their part fits in. Maybe I can be there to help, you know, mark when the major section is because there's been this crazy thing going on before that or all these rests, you know, in the band. Maybe I can help shape that line to help reflect more what the composer is intending. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I hear you and it sounds exactly like, you know, the kind of things like what I do in a, in a rehearsal as a, as a conductor, you're trying to get the most out of it, point out to people what particular lines they might be missing. They need to listen for, I mean, all those kinds of things. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. I just, uh, I, I wanted to hear it from, you know, uh, you, your role, mostly for my listeners. And from what you said, I mean, I'm, I'm spot on. It's the same kinds of things I do, you know, in a rehearsal setting. And uh, so that's, that's great. Well, listen, we have been talking for almost 90 minutes and it's been a wonderful 90 minutes, but before we wrap things up, Erica, is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about? I think we pretty much covered a slew of stuff, I think, today. I mean, I think we covered the gamut, so okay. <laughs> I think we're good. Well, I always like to like to be thorough, and I know that I'm not perfect, and I want to make sure that if I miss anything, I give, uh, give my guests the opportunity to say anything about it. But Erica, thank you for taking uh, time to talk with me today. Uh, and I want to wish you, you, Craig. Oh, I want to wish you all the best with what I'm sure is going to be a continued successful musical future. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, thank you today. And for anyone out there, if you're interested, please check out the New Day Ben's Light by the Erica Seguin Sean Baker Orchestra. Very good. Yes, I have links to that in my show notes. And so my listeners can certainly uh, find ways to check that out. But you have a great rest of your day. All right. Likewise to you too. You bet. My discovery composer of the week is Renaissance Spanish composer Johannes Cornago, thought to have been born in 1400 and died sometime after 1474. Cornago is the earliest composer in Spain from whom a substantial number of compositions survives. He may have been the Johannes Eximie de Cornago of the diocese of Calahorra, who requested benefices from Pope Martin V between 1420 and 1429, and who may have received his musical training at Tarazona Cathedral. In 1449, Coronago obtained a bachelor's degree in theology from the University of Paris. By April 6th of 1453, he was already serving King Alfonso I of Naples. His reputation as a composer must have been firmly established. On the day of Calixtus III's coronation in April 1455, the Pope issued a bull to Cornago identifying him as Alfonso's chaplain and confirming privileges already granted to him on June 19, 1453. On October 12, 1455, 
Cornago, described as a Franciscan, was referred to as enjoying an annual salary of 300 ducats, a figure confirmed by documents of September 1456 and January of 1457. Not even Josquin de Pre, at the height of his career, received so great a salary. In 1466, Cornago served Alfonso I's successor, Ferrante I, as chief almoner. He is last recorded among the singers at the court of Ferdinand the Catholic in 1475. Cornago's surviving composition comprise a mass, a motet, and 11 Spanish and Italian songs. His Misa Io Visto Lo Mapamunde, based on a Sicilian popular song in Barzelletta form, is one of the earliest surviving masses on a secular cantus firmus. The mass resembles English masses in some characteristics, such as duets at the beginnings of movements, a head motive, asymmetrical phrases, repetitive rhythmic patterns, and colorful harmonic progressions. The cantus firmus statements are augmented except at the end of the Gloria and the Credo. Cornago may have become acquainted with the new English mass genre during his studies in Paris in the late 1440s. The mass seems to have been written for the coronation and marriage at Rome of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III and Leonora of Portugal in 1452, followed by an extended visit to Naples. A superscription that associates the Mass with the Virgin Mary led to an attribution of an anonymous Misa Meditatio Cordis and the associated motet Gaude Maria Cornago. While the ascription to Cornago of the Misa Meditatio Cordis is not supported by stylistic evidence, there are several significant similarities between Cornago's Misa Io Visto and the Gaude Maria motet that follows it. His only surviving motet with an attribution is a freely composed four-voice composition, Patris Nostri Pecevernunt a very early setting of a text from the Lamentations of Jeremiah. The nine Spanish songs are among the earliest polyphonic cantiones in Castilian. Coronago's songs are characteristic of the mid-15th century chanson, governed by a duet between discantus and tenor and syllabic declamation at the beginnings of phrases, followed by melismas. Cornago's tenor and discantus parts are often close in range and even cross extensively, as in Yera con poco saber, a song probably composed after 1457 when the poet Pedro de Torres visited Naples. Cornago drew his texts from several other renowned Castilian poets, including the Marques de Santiana and Juan de Meña, 
Indeed, five of the nine Spanish songs are by known poets. Unlike the Spanish canciones, Morte o Merce is a through composed Italian composition that may date from the late 1460s when Cornago served in Ferrante's court, more Italianate than his father's. The song, in a homorhythmic and declamatory style, is an early example of emerging human humanistic attitudes, emphasizing the subordination of music to the words. The Petrarchan imagery of the text and the simple musical style distinguish this from Cornago's other songs. The large number of alternative versions of Cornago's songs reflects the versatility of the song repertory. They were not fixed compositions, but improvisatory and adaptable ones. Some of the reworkings, such as those of Pues que Dios te fiso tal, were conceivably composed by Cornago himself, but others may have seen as evidence of the esteem in which he was held. Akagum, for, for instance, composed two new contratenors for the discantus and tenor of Cornago's Que Mi Vida Preguantas. It is more likely that the two composers met while Cornago was studying in Paris. The EO Music Guide lists two recordings of Cornago's choral works, six recordings of his compositions for voice with accompaniment, and five recordings of miscellaneous compositions. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube recording of Cornago's Patris Notris Pechaverunt, performed by Jordi Saval and Hesperian 21 with La Capella Real di Catalunya. That wraps episode number 137. My show notes along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances are all posted on my Facebook page the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing New York City-based trumpet player, composer, and educator, Anthony Hervey. Other upcoming interviews include Jerry Hunt of the Champaign, Illinois-based blues trio, The Dig Three, New York City-based jazz pianist, John Thomas, New York City-based jazz drummer, composer, and educator, Luca Setaniello, and New York City-based vocalist, composer, arranger, and producer, Tana Alexa. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day. <laughs>